0: Well, we are over into Jude chapter 1, of course, verse 12. Jude has been describing these false teachers and making comparisons of them to some very deplorable examples. And we've spent some time on some of those examples and some of the things he's compared them to. But we come to verse 12, and now he calls these same people in the King James and the New King James version here, spots. It would seem... That he sees them as something more harmful and even dangerous than mere spots. And we also, in these uh, verses, we get a list to compare these two. We get waterless clouds, fruitless trees, raging waves, and wandering stars. We're going to see what he is saying as we look at these. The, this uh, newest list that he has given us. So in verse 12... These are spots in your love feast. Speaking of these false teachers. These are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Now the word here for spots is from the Greek word, and I think I put both of these in there for you. It's from the Greek word in this particular instance, because there's some controversy on this word, I actually looked up the word that was used. And the word that is used is there listed first. So as he wrote this out, Greek has, of course, a number of different forms for each of the words, and it tells you the tense voice and mood of it, which really helps you identify the meaning. So as Jude is writing this, he actually spells out in the English, it would spell out this way, S-P-I-L-A-D-E-S, Spilades. That is the word that he put in there. It comes from the root word, Spilas. Now, the reason I wanted to put all that in there for you is is that this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. There is another word that is used, and it's real close to the same number as as this one, and that is the Greek word spylos. Now, if we look at that, there's only one letter difference. That's why I wanted you to see the full form that they put, that Jude wrote it out. Because you're not going to mix that up, spilades with spilos. That's just not something that you're going to make a mistake on in the, in the Greek. Spylos means a stain or a blemish. That's its meaning. The word spylos is a, a stain or a blemish. Spilas, or in this case, spilates, means a rock in the sea. R-O-C-K. R-O-C-K. A rock in the sea. It is speaking of a ledge or a reef that is hidden by the water. Why they translated to spots? There are... Uh, Whole chapters of books dedicated to this, so I tried to to uh, make this as simple for you as possible. But Jude has been going on about the evil and dangerous the, the, the dangers that these particular false teachers are bringing into the body of Christ. I don't see why he would use the word spots. Now later on, in Jude chapter uh, in Jude chapter one, of course. Verse twenty-three. Look at this. But others saved with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled. Some translations read that as garment spotted. But it's not the word either. Of those two words we just looked at. This is a whole different word. And I wrote that out there for you. Did I write that out there for you? No, I didn't. Right. This one is espelomenon. menan. Yeah, that's a longer word. It um, it it means defiled, blemished, spot, something along those those lines. But he says, "But others say with fear, of pulling him out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled." Now, if he wanted to just use something that was spotted, defiled, he could have used this word. He could have used the word for spots, but he didn't do that because he is showing these folks as something dangerous. So what he's actually describing here is that these are uh, hidden rocks because when you have a, a boat in the sea and there are rocks underneath of the water, this is a danger for them and so they need to have some ways to mark them because the rocks are low enough in the water that you can't see them but high enough that they can do damage to the ship. And so these things are, they're not good. Now just because, you know, the, the rock is, is covered by the water doesn't mean that it won't cause you any harm. And sometimes you have to, you know, your eyeballs can play tricks with you with how far that particular object is under the water. I know we ran into this um, way back when I was in high school and went out to, a, to Bermuda. And if you ever get to go to Bermuda, and if you like this sort of thing, you can go to the Bermuda Crystal Cave. I think just about everybody has a crystal cave, but they have a crystal cave. It's a really—has uh, anybody ever been to Bermuda's Crystal Cave? You can look, probably look it up online and get a, a virtual tour of the thing. But the history of it was kind of neat. Some boys were playing ball or doing something in the yard, in the in the field, the yard, wherever they were at, and the ball had gone down a hole. Well, you know, being boys, you don't want to lose the ball, so they crawled down the hole to get the ball. And apparently there was more there than um, they were anticipating. And so they couldn't find the ball. It had you know, just kept on going. And so they went back to get a flashlight. I'm sure they didn't tell anybody where they were going because if you were a mom or dad, you probably wouldn't have let them uh, go out into this place. But anyway, they came on back and they went in with a lighted flashlight and they started looking around. They saw it was a whole lot bigger. I think they lost interest in the ball. I never heard that they found the ball. But anyway, they eventually came and reported to other people, and other people came, and they found out what was in there, and then other people went in and excavated the whole thing, and it is, it is mammoth, and if you get the, if you get the picture of two young boys in this place crawling around in the dark, you can kind of fear for their lives, because what they'll do is when you go into this crystal cave, it's it's a huge room. And when you look up, you have those, and I never keep them straight, stalagmites and stalactites. You know, one comes from up above and the other one comes from down below. And so you, uh, you're, you're, it's, there's water in this. And so they have a big raft that goes uh, around and you're standing on the, the raft. And while you're standing on the raft, they let you know what pure darkness looks like. And so they get you all ready for pure darkness. They said, this is, this is what it looks like when there is absolutely no light, and so they turn off all the lights, and you can put your face right here or hand right in front of your face, and you cannot see it. There is absolutely nothing; just the darkness you can feel. And this is how dark this probably was when they were climbing in, except they probably had a little bit of light coming in from the hole that they had crawled through. But they have you on the on the raft, and they have the lights up, and you see all of these uh, pointy things coming down. And then they said, now, we're going to turn the other lights on for you. And so they turned the lights on underneath of the raft, the the floating bridge that you're on. And what you see from underneath is perfectly clear water. Not a speck of anything in it. And you can look straight down. And it looks like, as you look down, that the uh, stalagmites, stalactites that are are there, uh, that if you just reached under the water, they would poke you. That's what it looks like. Now, he says, looking down, you can't tell this, but he said, looking down, that is about 40 feet of water. And you can see the bottom perfectly. It's just amazed. It's one of those uh, things that happened in my youth that I still remember very vividly because it made such an impression on me. But they said the opening for the water to get in is too small for Fish. So no fish can get inside this, this thing. It's only water that's in there. So when you look down, there's no fish swimming around. There's no life. It's just water. But it looks like if you slipped and fell in, that you would get speared by one of these things. They said, no, you wouldn't. They're, they're too far down. And, uh, the water would keep you <laughs> up above. But it doesn't look like it. And so nobody, uh, dove in or anything like that. So <laughs> didn't have any of that, that kind of a problem going on. But you can't really tell just by looking how far the thing is under the surface, and so you don't know does it present a danger or does it not present a danger? Can we go over top of it or can we not? I don't know if you've ever been in a boat going out and and seeing some rocks and seeing some things that are out there. Sometimes you uh, think you have enough room and you don't. And uh, I've gotten I've been in a canoe or a uh, rift and we've hit some things and other times you you clear it okay now one of the reasons that they'll actually call this a spot so let me hit, tell you this before we move on second peter 2 and 13 says and will the members peter they have a lot of things in common with jude he says i will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime they are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Now, Peter actually uses the word for spots. He doesn't use the word that that Jude uses. But since they're so close together, they actually, I think some of the people, used Peter to interpret Jude. Because Jude definitely used a different word. Why Peter went to this one and Jude went to the other, I don't know. But Jude is really trying to show the case. These things... They are they are rocks hidden under the surface of the water, ready to do damage and take some ships down. And this is what he's trying to warn them about. Not just spots, but something far, far more severe. These are spots in your love feast. Now the love feast that they would have, these are the times they would get together. They didn't have church. They have a place formerly to be church, so they would have a lot of these meals in different people's homes. Around this meal, would I, they would also have the, uh, the Lord's Supper, communion, as we call it. They would serve this at, the, at these particular meals, but they would also have the time of fellowship together. And this is why, one of the reasons that we, have, since we've been here as a church, over the 30 years we've been here, we've always had food and fellowship associated. We've done the covered dish dinners. Uh, As soon as we were able to get into this this place and we had a a spot we could do it, we started doing them right off the bat. We uh, sometimes go out to restaurants. Uh, It's mimicking what they did here in the New Testament church. It's not necessarily something commanded by Scripture, but it sure is something that has benefit. And so this is what they did. And he said, these people, these spots, these uh, rocks below the surface... They are rocks below the surface in your love feast. So you've got these love feasts going on and basically what it is is just a meal where you just share the fellowship with each other and these particular false teachers are sneaking in. I mean, they're, they're not, they don't have to sneak in. They, people know them, but their real character is hidden. They're hiding that. They're hiding the destruction that they bring. So these men are not just spots. They are a real danger. And they had to be, be warned about. Now just in, I sit back and I think on some of these things. What do we, if you have rocks in the water, what kind of things do you do to make sure that you don't hit them? Just in the natural. And so I gave you four things and I'm going to trans, translate them into some spiritual things. But four things that you would need to spot these. One would be a map of the area. The, what they would do for sailors is they would give them a map of the of the area and they would map out some of the reefs, some of the cliffs or ledges, some of the rocks that would be be around there, so that when you come on by you don't hit them. Now anymore if you go out in the water, you know they have buoys and you have to stay on certain sides of the of the boys and they have different color designations for them to help people out with that. But we map out the area. Most people that get in the water, they don't have a map, don't know how to read a map. So we can't necessarily count on them being able to do that. But these people who had the boats, if you had a boat, you had a map. and They would map out some of the areas that you wanted to stay clear of. And, of course, the more experience that you had being on a boat, you would just know in this area, stay away from this spot over here. There's uh, some things out over here. And you also had to know your boat, how far down does the boat go? If you're in a boat that's only going one or two feet underneath the surface well, you you may not hit some rocks that would hit other ones that are 10 or 12 feet below the surface. It just de- depends on that. And today, that's still the same thing. Some boats are lower in the water than other boats are. So a map would be one thing. A, s- a second thing would be a higher perspective. If you can get to pl- a place where you're a higher perspective, you can get away from that glare, that reflection that's on the water, and you could see more clearly down into the into the water to see what's there. So if you can get somebody on a higher perspective, sometimes boats would have a tall post, you know, the sails are on, and they would get somebody up in that taller spot so that they could look out. You could look out farther, but you could also look more straight down and see some of the dangers that might be there. Uh, another would be to get some light on the problem. Lighthouses came up for this. They would shine light on, and that would only really work for the the uh, uh, rocks that are above the, the water. Unless you're really close to it, that wouldn't really help you a whole lot. But if you're on the boat, you can maybe shine a light into the into the sea and, and you can probably see some stuff But get some light on the problem. Uh, and the fourth one was uh, lower the seas to expose the danger. Now, of course, no one who's uh, sailing a boat can lower the seas. But if you go during low tide, a rock that wasn't a problem could now be a problem. A rock that once was hidden may not now be hidden and then at high tide you would have other other things that would come into play as well so this all changes you have to know low tide and high tide these uh these these things would come in if you ever go down to the jersey shore i'm sure other places have this as well some places if you have low tide or high tide you'll have what's called a sandbar and you can go out into the water and the water goes down deep 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 and then all of a sudden it starts coming back up again i've seen some sandbars so uh, uh, striking that though you were once in water that was over your head once you got to the sandbar you're standing in stuff that's below your knees and uh, it's kind of fun to be out there and to be enjoying that I think it was uh, this summer I got to enjoy one of those with my granddaughter she um, we saw all the people that were out there on the sandbar she wanted to go so we got her on on out there and and she thought it was a kick to be able to do that but then later on the the tide started moving back on in and that wasn't as uh, as available, but she understood it. <laughs> we can't go out there now and was very, very good with that. But let's take a look at this. Uh, we got these four things that will help us. First off, a map of the area. You can just write these things in if you want to or or not, whatever you choose. But a map of the area, this would be Jude's warning. This would be biblical teaching or biblical understanding. This would be uh, things that were told. God will map out for us where there's a problem. And so he maps out, just like he does here in Jude, and he says, these are the characteristics of these false teachers. These are the characteristics of these uh, rocks below the surface. This is what they look like. And so all you have to do is take the teaching that we have there, the teaching that we have in with, um, with the Word of God, and compare it to these ones that are coming in, are they something that's going to help us or are they a danger? The second thing, a higher perspective. This would be like a prophetic word like we have in Revelation, the the words to the seven churches. This is God giving a higher perspective. I'm able to look out from above and be able to warn you about this. So he gave a higher perspective. He gave the message to the pastors. The pastor is supposed to take that higher perspective and pass it on to the church. We saw as we looked at this, that not everybody in the church was going to accept the message that the pastor received from God. Sometimes they were some were on one side saying, no, I'm not going to accept that. Uh, yes, I do think that's right. And we could, we could see from some of the words that the church was split on the issue whether we're going to accept this word from God or not. When God came out and said uh, about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, there are some people who accepted that. So if a word of prophecy were to come out and condemn the gospel or the teachings of the Nicolaitans, there would be those in the church who say, no, I'm not going to receive that. But it's a higher perspective. God is given his perspective on a thing. But not always is that going to be received. But it should help us to stay away from those rocks. Here's the third one. Light on the problem. This will be spirit guidance. There's uh, times that the spirit of God just rises up with you. He says, stay away from this one. He's just warning us. Something is wrong. I don't know exactly what it is, but in my spirit I know this person is not right with God. Their heart's not right. Their attitude's not right. Something is wrong. I may not know exactly what it is, but in my spirit I know there's something wrong. And so I stay away from that. That's a spiritual guidance. God's shedding light on the, on the problem. I may not know exactly what it is, but I know that something there isn't right. And I know to either be cautious or completely stay away from it. The third one, lower seas to expose the danger. Prayer, to expose the falseness in character and intent. Because sometimes we just pray, God, I'm not sure about this one. Uh, would you just expose their character? If their character is upright, let us see that. If their character is, is not right, let us see that. And we can pray in that way. And the God who controls the tithes, he can actually just lower that and say, well, there you are. There you have it. Now, he's done that in the Word of God. We've seen sometimes that he's exposed the character of the people and folks still follow them. He did things where Saul's character was exposed and people still follow them. Jesus did things where the Pharisees' character was exposed but people still followed them. Just because God exposes a character doesn't mean people are going to listen. But these are four things that we can do to stay away from rocks that are underneath the surface. Now he says here, these are spots in your love feast while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. So they feast with you. They have no fear or remorse about posing as Christians and participating in these meals. Because I know in these meals they're going to get to know people. They're going to get people relaxed with them. And they want to get people to be relaxed with them. They want to begin to build roads into this person's life. And this is a place that you can do that. And they have no fear going out there. Now this word for fear, I think I squeezed this in because I wanted you to see what this word looks like. Now, a phobos, if you know, if you know the Greek, you, you know, just in a little bit that I, I tell you, uh, ah is a negative. So you put that in front of the word and you turn the word negative. So if you take that off, you have the word phobos. What word do we get from phobos? Things that that cause people to fear. Now the straight definition is without fear or boldly. To go into something boldly or without fear. You have no phobia in, in going in there and doing that. Now Vines adds, that which causes flight. So you go into something and there's nothing that would cause you to flee. There is nothing that would cause you to to leave. If you look at some of the spy movies, and you know when the spy makes the uh tries to infiltrate the the enemy and to go on in there and to pose as one of them. But s- sometimes they'll let you see, you know, that they're filled with with fear. Uh they could get caught. Something uh something bad could happen. Some of the some of the contrast that you can see in this. If you watch the 007 movie, do you ever get the feeling, at least at least some of the early doubles, so I don't know about some of the later ones. But I know some of the early 007s, did you ever get the feeling that Sean Connery was nervous? Oh, He's just in there. You're not gonna figure me out. Even if you figure me out, I don't care. I'm gonna get out of it anyway. <laughs> he just has it's like there's no fear in him. I think the new guy sometimes they they let that fear go on. But if you ever watched as far as spire things going, uh I remember this one just because my uh it came up in some of the things we were watching with the with uh the bacons we were together. Uh, the The show how many remember Chuck? <laughs> Chuck was a uh, uh, a modern spy, kind of a movie where they took a guy or, ordinary guy who was a geek, worked in uh, kind of like a Best Buy, and he was one of the tech guys, and all of a sudden he gets turned into this super spy, but he doesn 't want to be he doesn 't have the personality to be a super spy, so if he goes into these things he 's filled with fear. I'm going to get caught. They're going to see me. They're going to know me. They're all this sort of stuff. And they're always telling them, stay in the car, stay in the car, stay in the car. And eventually, they got to my favorite line inside this this, this show. It only lasted a couple of seasons. I don't know, five or so seasons. But finally, he, he came to the realization. When they told him, stay in the car, he hollers out. He goes, it's not safe in the car. Because every time he was left in the car, the bad guys always came by the car. And he's there by himself. He's got no gun. <laughs> they wouldn't trust him with a gun. But you would see the difference. Sean Connery, he'd walk on in, no fear, suave. He's just he's just there. We're going to take care of this whole thing. Even when things start to go bad, you don't see any worry on his face. He's not concerned. Even when they catch him, he's not concerned. He's going to get out of it. And then you go over to Chuck. When Chuck gets caught, I mean, he's just panicking. That's the picture that you can get in here. They have the attitude of like a Sean Connery. When they infiltrate, they know I don't belong here. They know I'm here to do harm, but they're suave. They're at ease. He says they have absolutely no fear of being in your midst. They have no fear that they're going to get caught or that anyone is going to believe that they're there for anything other than good purposes. They have an excuse for all sorts of stuff. If you catch them on something that's not right, yeah, I know, but I'm growing. (laughs) And they try and appeal to things. And so because of that, they sometimes disarm these things that God has put in place to help them. They're not listening to the warnings that Jude has. They're not listening to the warnings that the Bible gives. They're not listening to the warnings that the Spirit would give them. They're not hearing the prophetic words that come. And they're certainly not praying to expose any of this falseness that is there. They feel perfectly at home. They don't have any kind of a fear with this at all. Now here we see this word is used about three other times in the word. This is the one time it's used in a in a negative sense. The other times it's used in a more positive sense. It It talks about speak the word without fear, serve him without fear. Or he may be with you without fear. Those are the other three uses that we see with it. But in this particular one, it's, it's more of a negative use. At least that's how it's, it's um, categorized. Which would mean they have, they're have they without reference, uh, reverence, they're shameless, and they're bold. They have no reverence for anything going on. I don't think that the God in you will see who I am. That's what they're doing. That's how that's how Jude is describing them. They are this bold. They are this fearless. They are in your midst. And they don't think there's a thing you can do to figure out who they are. He's painting the picture of some bad guys in the body of Christ that are very calculated, very cunning, know exactly what they're doing and have no problem with posing themselves as being one thing when they know they are something completely different. Posing themselves as seeking after God when God is the last thing on their mind. And then he's going to go on and give us his list here. He says, they are clouds without water. Clouds without water. How can you have a cloud without water? Because what is a cloud? It's water vapor. So if you have a cloud, do you not therefore have water? But he says there are clouds without water. Everybody assumes when you see the cloud, it's water. But they have no water. If you need rain, you see the clouds coming in, you're thinking, oh good, we got rain coming. And then those clouds just go right on by. And no water. So that's what they're like. Clouds without water. They have no purpose. If clouds don't have water, what reason would they be to be there? Now let me just give you this verse here in the Weist translation. These are hidden rocks in your love feasts, sumptuously feasting with you without fear. As shepherds leading themselves to pasture Waterless clouds carried past by winds, autumn trees without fruit, having died twice, rooted up. And we're going to get to this spot here that talks about our shepherds leading themselves to pasture. This word for shepherd, or serving, some translations put serving, some put put, uh, shepherd. But this, this word here comes from the Greek word Poimeno, which means to feed, to tend, the flock, keep, sheep, or to rule. As far as the tending is concerned, is to tend as a shepherd. In Matthew 2.6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler, that is not the word, who will shepherd my people Israel. It uses one word for ruler. It uses this word for shepherd. In Luke seventeen seven, talks about having a servant plowing or tending sheep. In John twenty one sixteen, when he talks to Peter, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know that I love you. Of course, he says, Lord, do you, uh, Peter, do you agape mean? He says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. That's the word shepherd. Acts 20 and 28, he made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. 1 Corinthians 9:7, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock. 1 Peter 5:2, shepherd the flock of God. Revelations, just about every single one of these translations, uh, these verses I gave you here in Revelation, all translated rule. So we have shepherd or rule. This is the way this is, this, this is here. This word is used. So they are clouds without water, carried about by winds. I'm oh, sorry, for, go a little further back. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Waste put it shepherds leading themselves to pasture. This is what they're they're out there to do. They're not there to to shepherd the people that are put under their care. They're taking themselves to to pasture. Now the two rule, two ways this is used. Ruler and shepherd. Shepherd as in a pastor. Here, that's how it's used in the New Testament. It's not too long ago we were in the book of Ezekiel. Remember the one prophecy that Ezekiel had about the shepherds of Israel? He was talking about the rulers of Israel. Those who ruled. They had a shepherding responsibility in it. And it talked about how they shepherd selfishly. They did things that helped themselves and not the ones that were under their care. Vincent had this uh, remark about it. He translates shepherds that feed themselves furthering their own schemes and lust instead of tending the flock of God. This is what they do. They shepherd the flock in a way such a way as to feed themselves. If you want a modern day equivalent of this, this is like people who go into politics and become mega rich. Then the lists are long. Of course, my favorites are always on there. Nancy Pelosi has been in there for 40-some years and is a multimillionaire, which you cannot do on just... I mean, they make a lot of money being in the Senate. But you don't make that much money to become what she has. And um, Harry Reid, another one. Just These people become extremely rich. Bernie Sanders... Has He collects homes. I believe the last count I heard, he was at six or seven. Just collects them. Uh, Just the the number of these people that are out there, that when they get in office, they don't have a whole lot, but when they leave office, or even while they're still there, they are multi-millionaires. These are people that are not shepherding, not ruling in a way to help the people that are under them. They are doing so in a way to help them back in the French Revolution, of course, Marie Antoinette and uh, those folks, they got executed because uh, the people were in utter poverty and they're up there living high on the hog. And they thought this is fine. Everybody remembers her statement? Let them eat cake. Now, cake back then wasn't what cake is now, so it had a little bit more healthful properties for them, but that uh, that did not go very, over very well. And the, you... No matter who you look at, you can look at China, you can look at the Soviet Union, you can look at Germany. All these places had rulers who were living very well, whose people were barely able to feed themselves. This is the way that they go. This is bad rulership. This is one of the signs these folks are not to be followed. They are not doing things for the benefit of other people. They're doing things for the benefit of themselves. You can ignore the word of God or not, you can listen to it. I don't understand why anybody would ignore it. But some people do. The um, these clouds without water, let's go over with them again. So they're serving only themselves, they're not serve- they're in a position to serve, but they're not serving other people. They're serving only themselves, he says. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds. In other words, whatever way is popular, whatever people want me to say, whatever direction I need to go in order to maintain this position, that's what I'll do. So if you have pastors who will teach the word of God only in the things that are popular, only in the things that people want to hear. And as soon as the public opinion turns against this part, the Bible says this is true, this is not. As soon as it turns, we, then we, we don't teach that anymore or we teach something against it. This is how you can have churches that come on out and teach that some parts of the Word of God are wrong because it's no longer popular for that part of the Word of God to be right. And so the winds carry them over here. You'll see this with, with rulers, with people that are in, in leadership, when they have, uh, I've, I've said this how many over how many years? I don't know how many years I've said this, but when you have people who change position and don't give a reason why, this is what they are. They're carried about by winds. They are motivated by the winds of the time. This is it. I'm not telling you that a political person cannot change their position, but if someone who genuinely changes their position, they once believed this, now they believe this. They will give you reasons why they changed. They will acknowledge that they once believed it this way and that they now believe it this way and that these particular things happened, and this is what changed me. That to me tells me they changed. When we have people that are in political positions and they say, well, I never said that. This is not a person who's trying to change. This is the person who's trying to go with the winds. When you have a person who gets up in front of this particular group of people and says one thing, because that's what this group wants to hear, and then gets up in front of another group of people and says something different, and then when confronted on it, I didn't say that. This is this is the person that Jude is talking about. They are moved about by winds. If you follow them and get hurt, it is on you. God's warned you. He's given you the written description. He's laid out the map. He has shown the light on it. He has given us prophetic words. If we fall for it, it is our own fault. If you get burned by it, it is not good. Don't go look to God and say, God, how come I got burned by this? God will probably I don't know what God's language would be, but it would be something along the line of because you were stupid. You didn't listen. You were given warnings. You didn't heed it. I'm all for a politician, a pastor, a leader having one position and changing it because they got more revelation. That's fine. But anybody that I've seen has done that will acknowledge, I did believe this. I now believe this. This is why. I've given you a number of indications with myself. I once believed this. I got more revelation. Now I believe this. But I'll tell you, I once believed that. I don't try and hide that. There's no sense in, in that. If I try and hide it, then I haven't really changed. I changed it because uh, I, I, I got some, some greater understanding on it. And so this is what we have to, to be able to acknowledge. If people don't, what they're telling you is they fit the description that Jude gives us of these stones, these ledges, these rocks that are underneath the water waiting to sink the ship. They are carried about by winds. Don't let them be, don't be carried about by these winds. So he's going to go on here. They are clouds without water, carried about by winds. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. I was doing all kinds of Greek on these things because some of this is just, just a little odd. Late autumn trees. I had some places to lay that an argument in the Greek for saying that the, that the uh, late autumn trees is actually not speaking about the fall of the trees or the fall of the season, but the withering of the fruit. So I took that to the Greek to look at it and I don't see that it holds any water. Because I, I believe in your outline, I gave you the actual Greek word that is translated late autumn trees it comes from two greek words uh, one means to uh to to waste away or pine and the other one uh uh autumn the 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 reference of it is does this refer to the fruit or does this refer to the tree and so that's what that's where the uh, disagreement would come in as i look at it it seems to be more pointing at the tree than it is the fruit now why that is important is and I think being the tree, being the focal point is more important, and just don't think don't think I'm just getting technical on this. The whole thing he is pointing out here is that these people look to be something. They have come in into your into your fellowship, they have weaseled their way in, they kinda of come like well, they snuck in, they brought in some bad stuff, they're they're hiding the bad stuff. And they're trying to pass themselves off as something substantial so that people begin to trust them. So this is why I think the autumn trees is better because what you're looking at is a tree that all through the spring and all through the summer gave signs and gave hope that there's going to be fruit. There's going to be something that's good that's going to come from this and so people stayed with it. And then when we get to the late fall, all of a sudden the fruit isn't there. But again, the other meaning that should come is that it's pointed at the fruit and the fruit has become withered. I kind of feel like these people don't have any fruit with them at all. But anyway, that's where I, I come from and and why I'm looking at this. So the picture is of a late autumn tree that are without fruit in the fall. Now, twice dead. What in the world does that mean? Twice dead. So I... I did some reading on this one, and the 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 simplest thing that I have found on this is just uh in five words they describe this, it may just mean utterly dead. That the wording in the Greek may just simply mean utterly dead. Not twice dead, but utterly or completely dead. And then of course he goes, pulled up by the roots. Now if you're pulled up by the roots, that is that is utterly that, there's no life. There might still be some green leaves on there, but that sucker's done. I was running on by a house uh, and they had this huge tree out in the front. And I guess those winds that came by on Sunday, that tree in the front yard was down. And it fell down. It didn't fall straight back into the house. It fell at an angle. And it was at such an angle that it looked like, how did that not take out part of the house? And I was actually... I was looking at it, I went by it the second day, and I looked at it again. I'm trying to figure this out. How did this how did this go on? Because it looks like it came straight back, and the top of it should have been in there. So they cut the top of it off, but I couldn't see any damage on the house. But uh, you can see, in the, as you go on by, roots up in the air. Now, there's no doubt that tree is done. There's no resurrecting. You could stand that tree back up, but that tree's not going to be around. He's saying they are utterly dead. They're pulled up by the roots. There may still seem to be some life on these folks, these things there, but um, all that withers is not because of the fall. They're, these things are dead. And that's what he's comparing them to here in this one. So, late autumn trees without fruit. You think you ought to be able to get some, some food off of them, some fruit, but there isn't anything there. Then he gets into verse 13. Raging waves of the sea. Oh, I gave you a couple of blanks in there. Let me see if I can fill them in for you. These are people we expect to get fruit from, but are devoid of any spiritual food. We expect to get some fruit from them, but are devoid of any spiritual food. The Pharisees did not see the fruit that Jesus offered. They didn't see it. Jesus had fruit. Pharisees didn't see it. Just because I don't see fruit on a particular tree doesn't mean it doesn't have fruit. Just because somebody that you know doesn't see fruit on that particular tree doesn't mean that tree doesn't have any fruit. Just like the Pharisees couldn't see it, they may not be able to see it either. And one more. False teachers have followers. Just because someone has followers does not mean they are genuine. I remember a cartoon, John Maxwell uh, put it out. I don't think he drew it, but he, he put it on out there. He had the picture of an old man and an, an old woman in the car driving. How many of you have ever been behind a, uh, uh, I mean old, really elderly? How many of you ever been behind behind a, an elderly couple driving? They drive slow. And so he was driving slow on a one-lane road. And there's a long train of people out there behind him. And his wife hollers over to him, and she says, "Don't think just because people are following you that you're a leader." <laughs> now, if you know John Maxwell, you know that would fit in very well with his uh, his stuff. But just because somebody has followers doesn't mean that they're that they're a true teacher, true true person. With this, he says, "Here, raging waves." I read a whole mess of things on this, this this sucker, and I just couldn't find anything that was real straightforward about raging waves. What the, they were going in all kinds of different directions. So I just decided to close up all those little things, all the different Greek guys that are out there breaking this thing down, and I just went back to my roots of marine biology. Those of you who know me you know have some roots in marine biology and uh, biology, period. And I uh, began to think about what raging waves do. You know what raging waves do when they're on the sea? It produces, and it says it, right? Here, take a look at this. Raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. Now, waves in the sea, when they when they raise, they produce foam. If you go over to the shores where the waves are, the waves are crashing. When you see the waves crashing, you'll see foam. How many of you have been on the beach and you see foam coming on up? That foam gets washed up into the sand, and the sand breaks it down what that foam is, is proteins in the ocean. These are proteins before they break down. If you can get the proteins out of the ocean before they break down, then you cut down on the foods that can feed uh, algae and some other things that aren't so, so good in there. And uh, one of the things that uh, we as uh, people who keep um, saltwater aquariums, reef tanks, you try and keep down on, on what's known as the, um, the, the bad nutrients. Uh, the nitrates, the nitrites, things along those lines. Ammonia, of course, is just bad. Ammonia is one of the proteins. And so that comes from the fish waste and uh, decaying food or decaying um, things that die inside the the ocean. They come on up and they produce these proteins that are in the water. The idea is to break them down to get them out. So that the ocean does is over by the, the coast the waves break. When the waves break, it makes this foam, this foam gets washed up, it heads into the sand, the sand breaks it down so it doesn't bring all those uh, nutrients into the water. We tried to duplicate that in the saltwater industry. And it's called, if you want to go up and, and see this, it's called a uh, protein skimmer. Technical name for it is a foam practitioner. But if you just look up protein skimmer, you'll get the idea. And these things take a lot of fine tuning. You've got to get just the right amount of air and just the right amount of water and you have to you have to play with it for a little while so that you can get it right you have to get the level of water right in the protein skimmer you can't have too much you can't have too little and you're you're playing with all this and then the foam comes up and then the when you're doing the foam in the foam practitioner you have to make sure the foam's not too white because if it's too white then there's too much water in there and it, it won't work and so you have to get it just right. You want just the right color of foam. And then you have a collection cup. And you have to keep going back in there and cleaning out that collection cup. And uh, and making sure if you mess up on this and the too much water gets in there, it will wash out all that junk that you have filtered out back into the tank. And now, instead of dealing with that little bit at a time, it's dealing with it all at once. And you can really cause your tank some problems. And there's two schools of thought on here. Some people believe that in order to keep a reef tank, you must have a foam practitioner. And other people, no you don't. You don't need to have one. And you, and uh, you can function just fine without it. Now I have done a tank with it, and I have done a tank without it. Right now I have a tank without it. And you have to do some other things to account for that if you're, if you're not going to have the foam f- practitioner. But if you have one, it's also going to take some things out of the water that you want in the water. So you have to replenish them. So all this stuff we try and do to duplicate what God does just on a regular basis. He just does it. The ocean's just set up. Nobody has to make any adjustments. It just kind of works. But when you have a storm going on and it stirs up these these waves on the sea, now you've got foam out in the ocean. There's no place for that foam to go. So the foam will settle just right back in to the ocean and there won't be any benefit for that foam coming out. Now, if you ever think, why can't we do this in freshwater tanks? There is no foam practitioner for a freshwater tank. It does not work. It only works in the ocean. It only works with ocean water. If there's not a saltwater uh, tank, you cannot use this method. So I was looking at this and saying raging waves. Look at how it says at this this here. Raging waves of the sea. Not raging waves on the beaches. This is where the foam practioning goes in where you want to bring out those impurities, toss them out on the land, let the sand break it down and not have to get into the ocean at all. But out in the sea, that's not going to help you. So what he's, what I see this as him referring to anyway is that this is just like the waves that are out in the sea. Here's the foam. Here are the impurities. These impurities are coming out. They are there for you to see, but they will eventually just settle back into the ocean. So when things get stirred up, when these people get stirred up, when things begin to agitate their emotions when things begin to agitate, trying to expose them, you're going to see their true character come out. And when that happens, you need to see it. You need to be looking. Raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. Bringing that shame of theirs out as foam on the ocean where you can see it. If you don't choose to deal with it, it eventually will go away and it will settle right back into their life, right back into the church. So, that's my interpretation of it. I don't know that it'll agree with anybody else's, but it sure seems to fit a lot more what he's, uh, um, what he's building to here. Here's the next one. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now, there's two things that this could possibly be referring to. Maybe more. I'm gonna give you two. One is, this could be comets or meteors that go in a direction different from other stars. When it says wandering stars, these are things that are out in the out in the night sky and they go in a different direction. If you sit and you watch this night sky, everything moves in the same direction. Now, out in space, all those things are not moving in the same direction. They're moving in many different directions. But if you just sit there and look at them... From our perspective on Earth, they all move in exactly the same direction. I can prove it to you by this. How many have ever seen a time-lapse picture of the stars? A time-lapse picture is one in which you would take... If you have a camera that has these settings, if you ever had one that has manual settings on it... Anybody have a camera that has manual settings on it? We all have automatic settings anymore. We don't mess with all that. But if you have a a camera with, with manual settings, you have a particular setting on there that is B... B stands for bulb. What that means is if you put that camera into the B mode and you push that, that shutter, it does not shut again until you let it release the shutter. It will stay open. And so what we would do, if you ever see one of the shutters on a camera that has what looks like a screw in the center of it, or something that will take a screw, you actually take something, screw it in there, and it gives you a trigger off camera and you just push it push it to open and close it and by doing that when you push it close you can actually set it so that it stays that way but you don't move the camera if you move the camera you mess up this whole shot but if you if you do this right you start it up at one time in the evening and you let it let it be open for hours many many hours four hours five hours six hours and what happens is the stars begin to pass and they all pass and they make a circular motion. They don't go in a straight line. Well, depending upon how close you are to the equator and so forth, the line would become straighter. But they, they just move and you just see these, these lines in the sky. Anybody ever see those pictures? They have lines in the sky? I should have had you look one up and pull that on. Put one up. But uh, just lines in the sky. And uh, they, they look great. But all it is, it's just a star started here and as the earth moved and rotated, it moved in the sky. And they all move at exactly the same pace. But if you have a meteor, if you have a comet, it doesn't go the same direction as the rest. It goes in a crossways because it's closer to the earth and we can spe- we can see its movement as different from the rest. And so he puts them here as wandering... Stars. Could be comets. Could be meteors. They go in a direction different. Different from the rest of the stars. Now this will be recognized best by those who study the stars. These are the ones that are going to see this the most. But how many, of you know, non-experts will tell them that they're wrong in their observations? You could have people that have studied the stars and they're going to say, alright, this thing over here, this is, this is moving differently than the rest of them are. And they'll have people that don't know what they're talking about tell them that they are wrong. So this is one thing it could be referring to. The other thing is what's going to come in the verses that, that we'll get into next time. It could be referring to something in Enoch's prophecy. So we'll tackle that when we get to the verses that talk about Enoch's prophecy. Maybe he's just introducing that, but wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever." That's a judgment. There is a judgment that is coming down on these people. So they are clouds without water. Tearing about by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit. Twice dead pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. And wandering stars for whom there is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So in each one of these he gives you the identifying mark. Clouds without water. But then also... The result of that carried about by the winds, late autumn trees, oh we got that up there yep that 's one way that you can do it that 's more of a spiral than i 'll see and so that means I believe that they 're closer to the north pole or south pole. If you get the more spiral that you are, the more you are are close to the poles, the more straight line you 're closer to the equator, so you can almost tell where the where they are taken just by the the uh, arc. Of that. But thanks for pulling that up, Daryl. That's what, that's the idea that you'll see them. That's only, um, I would say maybe two hours for that one. Probably no more than two hours of exposure for that one. Cause you can see how, you see how short the lines are? That's how much they can move, those stars can move in two hours. When you see the ones that are real long and the lines are, are just, they go on for, for most of the, the shot. Those are the ones that have been open up all night, or for a number of different hours. So you can kind of tell how long the thing was open. You can actually play. The more expert you are, I'm not an expert in this thing. You know, I know a little bit about it, but um, you can tell where they are as far as in the hemisphere and how long they they had it open. By um, by just the way that it looks. All right, let's finish this up here. Now, I put this in your outline for you. Just because I eat it doesn't mean it's food. How I many of you know little kids? They put things in their mouth, but it's not food. Little Lumi, we get to watch her. We saw this with all the other ones too, eating our kids when they grow up. Whatever, whatever's within her reach, it goes, it's going to the mouth. This is what we do. We take anything and we bring it to the mouth. We're going to eat it. We're going to try to eat it. We're going to make the attempt. This is what what uh immature people do. If I'm giving something, I'm going to try and eat it. As we uh experience some things of putting them to our mouth that's not so good, now we get a little more cautious. You know, when you get into the toddler stage, we sometimes we just look at that. Uh-uh. You know, it's green. I'm not going to eat it. It doesn't take too long for us to get opposed to green food. And then later on in life, some of us regain a love for that. Just because I reject it doesn't mean that it isn't food. Just because people reject something doesn't mean that there there isn't food there. Now, how do I recognize fruit? Now, this is is an exact same list I gave you when we went through Jude before back in 2013. I didn't change a thing on it. How do I recognize fruit? First off, it refreshes. How many of y'all know when you bite into a piece of fruit, there's a refreshing that is there? Especially if you like that fruit. If you like cantaloupe, there is a refresh. When well, you bite into a nice, sweet piece of ripe cantaloupe, oh boy, that can be refreshing. Now, some people like grapefruit. And they bite into that and they have got a refreshing from that. I am not one of those people. I despise grapefruit. You will not ever get me to eat I don't care how much sugar or whatever it is that you put on top of that sucker. There is no way I'm getting near it. I know I don't like grapefruit. I know there is no refreshing from grapefruit. But I've had people in my family, they, they like grapefruit. I don't care how much they like it. I do not. That is not refreshing to me. But for other people, you know, it is. But this is one thing about fruit. It refreshes. You, uh, you bite into a grape. If you're real thirsty or, or hot in the summertime, I mean, those grapes, there just they can be a refreshing that's there. This is one of the things that's that's fruit. When we get to the fruit from the tree, it refreshes. When we get spiritual fruit, I may not like all the, well, the things that are being taught, but they're down in my spirit. My spirit is saying that's what I needed. There's a refreshing that's there. And that's one of the things that we get from from food, spiritual food, it refreshes. Secondly, it convicts. When I get real spiritual food, it can convict me on certain things. Not condemn. Difference between condemning and convicting. Condemning means you're no good, you never will be any good. That's not spiritual food. Spiritual food, though, ought to convict and not say, "You're not doing that right. Now, you can fix it by doing it this way. Ah, all right, I see that. It convicted me on this, but it pointed me in the right direction to go. Third, it matures. If I've been eating something for a long time and I'm not growing, it's not maturing me. Either I'm not doing the right things with that food or that food is wrong. Fourth, it confuses the hard-hearted. Real spiritual food, real fruit from a tree, will take people that are hard-hearted and it will confuse them. How did the Pharisees respond to Jesus' teaching? Many times it confused them. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how to go with it. Sometimes they understood it, but they didn't like it. They got mad at it and they tried to, to come against it. But hard-hearted people, it will confuse them. I get amazed at the number of Christians who would look at hard hearted people and see them reject something and thereby reject it themselves. Thinking, why in the world would you do that? You look at the uh, some of the things we got into on Sunday. I know it's not always popular to to rant on some of those those things, but I get tired, real tired, and I have for years, of seeing the church sound like the news media. Whatever the news media rejects, people in the church reject. Whatever the news media accepts, the people in the church accept. That's ridiculous. I will never use them as a barometer. Except for the fact that if I believe something and they agree with me, I'm going back to the drawing board and check it out, make sure I'm right. Because that's reason reason to, to call the whole thing into suspicion. If I ever agree with the news media... On, on anything. And I'm, I, even if the weather's, if I think it's a nice day, the news, what, news people say it's a nice day, I'm going back to check it out just to make sure. Cause I'm just not sure. That's how suspicious I am of these, of these people. But you see, real food, real spiritual food will confuse the hard-hearted. If it's not confusing hard-hearted people, it's probably not spiritual food. It's probably flesh food. Here's the last one. It is rejected by the religious. Religious people will reject spiritual food. They will reject spiritual fruit. They will not take it. They will see it. And they will say no. Religious people, they're hard-hearted people too. But they don't come across as being hard-hearted people. To some people, they just they can't see the difference. You ought to be able to look at a religious person who has become hard-hearted and begin to tell they're not right. Doesn't mean that you hate them, despise them, kick them out or anything like that. You got to try and help them. But something is not right there. So how do I recognize fruit? It refreshes, it convicts, it matures, it confuses the hard-hearted and it is rejected by the religious. If you have stuff that fits that, more than likely, that is fruit from God, that is spiritual food, that is stuff that is going to help your spirit, not your flesh, but it's going to help your spirit. And understand, we have been given things to help us to spot these rocks that are under the surface. We've been given a map of the area, things like Jude's warning, teaching from the Bible. Paul has given us much to to learn about false teachers. Peter has given us much to learn about false teachers. We have a higher perspective. There is prophetic word that comes to the church just like it was in Revelation. There is light that is shed on the problem. Our spirit will guide us. Down in our spirit, I'm told, yes, no, listen, reject. When we can pray to expose the falseness and character and intent thereby lowering the seas to expose the danger. And these are things that that we ought to be doing. Father, your word is a guide to us. It is a help to us. I thank you so much for all the things that you prepare us for, for all the things you warn us about. And Father, we are not in this world on our own. And though the enemy has rocks below the surface, some of them in our very midst that are just looking for the opportunity To sink us and to take us down. But Father, we are not out here on the seas without help. But you have given us things to encourage us, to direct us, to guide us, to help expose that which is false. So that we can recognize those that are in our midst. That are not beacons of light. But they are rocks under the surface. Hazards for our spiritual walk. But they will not take us down if we yield to the things that you've given us. And we thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.